Good evening, and thank you for allowing me to come into your living rooms. Well, I'm not easily shocked, but I did expect people to dress a bit more formally before sitting in front of their sets, now that two-way television is here. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette. I already got it wrong. The Shamley Silhouette. Yet another analysis of Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, I am your host, Zach Eastman. Um, This is going to be an experiment today. Um, We are going to try and create a podcast companion to an article series I will be producing for realnerdspodcast.com about Alfred Hitchcock. The original intent was to go through all 52 of his films. Um, there would be 53, but there's one missing. It's called the Mountain Eagle. So if anybody out there knows where the fuck the Mountain Eagle is, please call me. Or better yet, please call the British Film Institute because they're the people who should be getting that news. We are going to try to, instead of going through all 52 of the films, to just kind of talk about Hitchcock in general. Um, these can be individual reviews of the films. They can be particular discussions on one film, discussions about a theme in Hitchcock's work discussions about Hitchcock's collaborators and more importantly, just to kind of celebrate a filmmaker who has laid the groundwork for a lot of filmmaking tropes and techniques and storytelling that we know today. Um, For our trial run, I figured it was best to start with something familiar. Uh, If you are a real nerds podcast listener, you are aware of the recent discussions about a certain suave debonair motherfucker named Cary Grant. Uh, by a certain individual, a certain one. I'm not going to say who he is yet. Um, the uh, uh, the person in question Mr. H- uh, Mr. Hitchcock used, which was Cary Grant, made four films uh, together. with uh, He made four films with Mr. Grant. Um, and they always end up being in the top ten listings. Um, each one of these films, like whether together or separate, always find their way in the top ten listings. Um So we're going to start with arguably the cream of the crop here. Uh, To help me do that, though, uh, he is the host of Real Nerds Podcast and the president of the I Wish I Was Cary Grant fan club. Uh, Please welcome Mr. Ryan Frost. Thanks for having me, Zach. I will try not to host this podcast. And, you know, I always struggle when I uh, when I'm guests on something because Mm -hmm. I have to really take a step back because usually I'm the one steering the ship well i'll tell you right now this is the pilot who tried to gun down thornhill (laughs) but um but also if i'm stumbling over the introduction of this already we're in a bad spot so maybe we should just give this over to you okay (laughs) Um, no thanks for having me i i'm excited because the other guys don't care about cary grant like i do well no and and classic film and and i think that you know well I think we all have our own little interests on the show in regards to what we like in movies. And I think we all generally appreciate classic films to one degree or another, uh, except for Brad. I don't know if he appreciates them. I don't know. I don't know if he's ever, has he ever said, I really like an old movie? He's, you know what? I don't think so. 
And my my only example is is that he thought Halloween was boring. So <laughs> yes, um, I I actually I sent out an interview slash intro questionnaire kind of thing for that this I did scene. not do. So yeah, but we already knew what you were gonna do. <laughs> That's here. true. Like I already had that from the get go. He's gonna talk about Cary Grant. Um, although originally I did think we would want to talk Psycho, but that actually is a different discussion. I think whereas with your obsession with Cary Grant. Combined with the Hitchcock subject at hand, I think that there's something to discuss here in terms of how does a star and a director work together. Um, the But the questionnaire that I gave everybody, Brad answered it by saying, I've only seen a couple of episodes of Hitchcock Presents, and that was when I was a kid. And mm. I was like, well, great, then that'll be your episode, so watch some fucking episodes. Nice. Um, uh, but we've got other people coming up cool. um, on the show that will – talk about different subjects i know that i just i just texted james um who is still raising his kid right now like uh in the in the thrust of new fatherhood uh but he and i are going to talk rebecca um nice. which i think is uh uh going to be the one that's going to be an interesting discussion in terms of how much a producer can interfere with a director's mm-hmm. vision but also it's fucking rebecca like who yeah. doesn't love rebecca um but we're here today to talk about carrie grant um what 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 makes this combination so delightful? Um, I, I, wh- it's got to be something in. I think both a lot of, of it. Besides, if you take away to catch a thief, which I think is maybe their weakest collaboration. Not saying it's not a good movie, mm-hmm. but all his other ones, Cary Grant kind of plays against type in them. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's Suspicion, which is a great film, Notorious, which is amazing, mm-hmm. um, and then I mean when you talk North by Northwest, you're talking about one of the greatest films of all time. Yeah, so. In that, I guess, I guess in North by Northwest, it's a little more Cary Grantish. Uh, if if you haven't seen North by Northwest, stop listening to me talk about it and go <laughs> see the film. Uh, but he's you know he's kind of a fish out of water, and he's not. I guess he's not really his normal dashing self in it. Um, no, he's very much a man on the run. Yeah, which falls in line with the trope of the man who wasn't there and the thirty nine steps. Yeah. Um, actually, it's been suggested and. I do agree with it. The 39 Steps is pretty much the original version of North by Northwest, or at least what it's like. It's like the origin point of it. But yeah. 39 Steps is based on a novel. North by Northwest is an original creation by Ernie Lehman. Um, th- this combination that they had together, I do feel um, personifies one of two sides of Hitchcock when it comes to leading men. Um, obviously there's the discussion of the women in his films, which is going to obviously be another episode entirely because it has to be discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to his leading men, there are two ones he worked with the most. One was Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart, um, who was kind of the the uh, epitome of Hitchcock as he was. Um, like there's a bit of nervousness behind it. There's an everyman quality to it, but there is also like – there's faults in it. Like he's 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 a vulnerable human being, susceptible to danger. Cary Grant, though, he is by nature of his persona the dream man, that mm-hmm. the guy you want to be. Like he's yeah. the the ladies love him, the dudes want to be him. Um, the original Joe Cool, if you will. Yeah. Um, and so within that, these films, with the exception of one, I feel, give Hitchcock the opportunity to vicariously live through Grant. Um, and it's fascinating to me how a lot of different analysis of Alcor Hitchcock, which 
you know, if you want to, you know, read Donald Spado's book um, or listen to the secret history of Hollywood, you can kind of get a glimpse of Hitchcock and his personal persona. Um, but it's interesting how the Grant persona in the Hitchcock films seems to be never really ignoring the negative sides, but it kind of smooths them over. Um, I think in particular, it's also important to know who Grant was as a performer and also as a person, because as we'll discuss later today, the, the Hitchcock films that he did eventually got to a point where personal life and movie life kind of collide, not in an overt way, but just subtle things. Um, so Ryan, you've been immersed in the Grant uh, topic for, I want to say about a year now at mm. the very least. Yeah. Um, but first I want to ask, like, did, did you get into Cary Grant on accident or was it an all lifelong thing? Uh, that's a good question. I, you know, he's one of those actors that you're always familiar with because if you like movies, I guarantee you, you like Cary Grant. And when I was growing up, I, my mom was a single mom. And so a lot of times I spent time at my grandfather's house and he would always have uh, TCM on when it was nothing but or AMC when it was nothing but old timey movies. Oh yeah. And my grandfather really liked westerns. But every once in a while something with Cary Grant would sneak in. Really? Whether I, the first Cary Grant film I can remember watching and not knowing it was Cary Grant was Bringing Up Baby. Um and at the time you don't when you're young you're just like oh this is kind of a silly movie. Yeah, it's about them trying to raise a leopard. <laughs> yeah. And Catherine Hepburn. And you know it's uh so about I don't know when did I, I, the awful truth came out last year on, on Criterion I think in January something around that time yeah and I watched it and I quickly realized I said man I actually have a lot of Cary Grant films that I've seen but I've never got into the Cary Grant filmography right well it's not something you think about right away yeah. I mean like th there are solidified classics of his much like Hitchcock's which yeah. we'll get to in a minute so awful truth though comes out on Criterion. Mm -hmm. And we know you probably already had Notorious. And, oh, yeah, um, I did. Uh, I, I had Notorious North by Northwest and To Catch a Thief. Okay. Already on Blu-ray. So you were already pre prepared to go into the essentials. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you know, you have, I mean, there's pillars of Cary Grant. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I still think The Awful Truth is his best film. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, if you're splitting hairs, I mean, you can put North by Northwest as 1A, yeah. 1B. Um, so, you know, you get into it and... Then I slowly started developing this, like, he's really fun to watch. and <laughs> Addictive, if you will. Yeah, because he, when you watch him on The Awful Truth, he's a guy who's really handsome, is a really good actor, but he's not afraid to be made an ass. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of commitment you need in films like a Hitchcock film, where if you're the if you're the guy out of water like a north by northwest you got to believe that Cary Grant is a fish out of water yeah exactly you know and he's he's able to do that and he whether and to catch a thief you got to believe that he's some retired like <laughs> retired jewel thief jewel who thief. was who was who was also in the war <laughs> yeah and you do you do yeah. and it's and you know i think maybe his most uh, underrated performance in the hitchcock um series is suspicion mm -hmm. because he's so good in it yep. and uh, he plays against type, and I mean, when we get to suspicion, we can talk about well, why, why, yeah, and uh, but yeah, I so yeah, it started a long time ago. I've always liked, uh, you know, since we've been friends, you know, I've liked old timey movies, yeah, 
and watching one of the best ever to do them mm-hmm. is really rewarding. And he's an actor who is consistently still to this day considered one of the greatest movie stars. Oh, yeah. And we're not even talking about like actors just like only acting and whatnot, but you have to have kind of a combination of things. Like I love Humphrey Bogart. I think Humphrey Bogart might be my favorite golden age mm-hmm. actor. However, his, his, um, when we think movie star, we don't necessarily jump to him right away all the time. We do tend to push toward Cary Grant I think or Clark a, Gable, but I think Grant more so. I think Grant is your – if you were to pick a person who would tip like a, signify or typify a, a movie star, it would be Cary Grant. Yes. Where you're tall, dark, and handsome. Yeah. I mean, he's 6'2", 6'1". Mm-hmm. He always has a tan. Yeah. He always has a slick back hair no matter what role he's in. Um, he's always got a kind of a smirk on his yeah, face. Yeah, he's – and he can be tough too. I mean if you see stuff like Destination Tokyo or – I mean in Father Goose, he's not a very nice guy in Father Goose either. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean he becomes because he's Cary Grant. Eventually he wins you over. But right. uh, that's why you picked Father Goose too. He, you know, towards the – like North by Northwest was – he didn't make very many movies after that because he became disenfranchised with Hollywood. Yeah. And that started really early in his career where, um, well, you know, you – watch golden age films all the time 22 uh no was it like 39 of all his films were made in like seven years or something yeah so he's making where how we you and i go to a nine to five job yeah that's how actors were treated back then yeah like cattle (laughs) yeah so you wouldn't um you know nowadays where you take someone like tom cruise and he's not even in a movie this year yeah but you know, so Tom Cruise would go from Top Gun, then he'd go right into, you know, Born on the Fourth of July or whatever film. Mm-hmm. So he'd have the weekend off, and then Monday he's shooting another film. Exactly. And it was a factory mentality back in the day. Yeah. It was very much like roll it off the assembly line, and hence the cattle coin term, which is a Hitchcock thing, is he never said actors are cattle. He said actors should be treated like cattle uh, in the sense of just like, you know, keep them moving, keep them going. Mm-hmm. Um, they should know what they're doing. Like basically, it was a dig against method acting. Um, uh, but the the to me the grant of it all is that yes, at that point he does the the bulk of his work in the forties, and then the fifties it starts becoming dabs here and there because he starts he, he really starts picking t- things he wants to work on, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, just by reading a couple biographies and just reading about him, he was just really done with Hollywood because. Mm-hmm. He didn't like how actors were treated, and I agree with him. You know, he's he made a lot of money, mm-hmm. but you know, you don't get to pick your films, and he got felt like he's being treated like a second-rate Cary Cooper, which is why he went independent. At that and point. he went independent. I think The Awful Truth was his first independent film. If I I might be wrong on that, but he started just picking his own projects. Mm-hmm. Now we'll put a grant aside for a second. Let's talk a little Hitchcock. He's the master of suspense. He's Frankly, the first director you kind of hear the name of, other than Spielberg, um, yeah. arguably, um, or George Lucas. But I, mm. I think George, George Lucas, Lucas doesn't put out enough. He, he stopped being a director a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so um, the what is the first Hitchcock thing you ever see? Would you have to say? Uh, I think The Birds is the first Hitchcock film I Same saw. Same for me. Yeah. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a film that attracts your eye when you mm-hmm. like hear about like killer birds <laughs> yeah and being younger you don't appreciate film like i do now yeah did you did you not like it the first time you saw it? Uh, no i did i it's still to me it's <laughs> i i still think it's uh, it's a good movie but when i 
put Hitchcock films in there. I don't know if I make it makes a top ten. Yeah. Um, because you know, I still like some of his early stuff too. That you mentioned Three Nine Steps. Um, I like the Man Who Wasn't There a lot. Um, or Man Who Knew Too Much. I'm sorry. Yeah. And uh, but as what's fun about Hitchcock is you, you watch his films. Uh, he, you can see him starting to get a style. Yeah. And I don't know when his style actually takes over, but you know right away it's a Hitchcock film. Maybe Rebecca, when it has that really long shot in it, <laughs> that is an amazing shot. Because yeah. um, you know, I remember watching a uh, biography on him on A&E, yeah. and they talk about how meticulous he was. Mm-hmm. And that one shot in Rebecca when he's they're coming down the staircase. Yeah. Uh, you know, something, I don't know how long a continuous shot it was. But they had people running behind and adjusting the lighting, and yeah, you basically have to move with yeah, the, which is very similar to the uh, camera work that he uses in Young and Innocent, and also Notorious, which we'll talk about later. That shot from the balcony oh, yeah. down all the way to Ingrid Bergman, which is a shot that they would talk about like these shots would take up most of the day, but they were the ones that were all in his head. He pre-planned everything. He storyboarded everything to death. Basically, oh, yeah. the movie was already made by the time he got in front of the camera to shoot it. Did I hear right that he was maybe one of the first storyboard people that he... He's the one who popularizes okay. it, I believe. At the very least. Like, I mean, you could argue Walt Disney does that. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. it's animation, but, like, Disney storyboarded things to death. I mean, too. I guess I'm forgetting oh. maybe the most famous one. So. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean, again, it's animation, so it's kind of mm-hmm. different, you know? Um, but, uh... uh Hitchcock's um, meticulousness, I think, comes from just like he already knows what the movie is in his head the mm-hmm. moment he's by the time he gets on the set. All it is is just giving actors adjustments if need be. But he's also said that the actors should know what they're doing when as they go in. And this is a time before method acting really becomes a standard. I think he did. He didn't work with many actors who were method primarily for that reason. Um, and. I mean, and obviously you're a horror fan, so you know we've 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 all watched Psycho at some point, and that's obviously a big one. Um, but you know, you've I mean, at least I, I, so. To, I mean, it's always hard for me because you know I love Cary Grant so much, but I probably think Psycho is my favorite film of his, really, just because I think it's uh, so unique. Mm-hmm. And uh, Anthony Perkins is amazing in it. Oh, he's brilliant. And I mean, they have the shot when. Uh, Norman stabs the cop coming up the stairs. Oh yeah. Oh, um, uh, Arbogast. Yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, it's amazing. It's, and the, the film I think is one of the most shocking endings in movie, history. movie history. Yeah. That, that. I mean, now it's, you know, it's such in people's subconscious. I'm pretty sure everyone's knows the ending to psycho. Yeah. Um, which is why it was, it was kind of weird that they were going to do Bates Motel because I'm just like, well, I know how it's this a story great show. It is a good show, but when it, it first came out, I was just like, well, I know yeah. how this fucking story ends. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, so you, so you are more than familiar with Hitchcock's oh, oeuvre, yeah. more, most of which we would argue would be the Grant films because those are the ones you are going back to as of late. Mm-hmm. Um, so, tell me a little bit about Grant for the for the audience now. He he comes from a very troubled background. Very. Um, his mother is put away in an asylum. Told she was dead. Yeah, told she was dead. So Grant runs off and joins the acrobatic circus. <laughs> yeah, he. Uh, if you've seen, well, I mean, I already mentioned the awful truth. Yeah, you can see the vaudeville in him. Mm. He's very, uh, he's very good at it. And he, so yeah, so I mean, his childhood was awful. His his dad really didn't care for him. 
his mom had some sort of mental health issues. And when he came home from school one day, she just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And his dad said that she died. And so when he turned 15 or 16, he jumped on a boat and went to New York City, yep. uh, where he uh, was known for working with stilts. And he was a very good stilt man. And he uh, was on a couple of Broadway plays there. It was really interesting when you read a book that how many of stars like that passed uh, each other, cross paths. Mm-hmm. And... He eventually decided he wanted to be in movies, and he just packed up and went to Hollywood. And uh, there's, you know, there's newsreels. His first deal was with Paramount, if I remember correctly. And yeah. you know, it's, oh yeah, you know, the great new star, Paramount, Cary Grant. <laughs> and they bring him out, and he has, to, and you know, they're really concerned about image there. So someone like Grant, who's handsome and attractive, he's going to be picked up right away. Which, which, by the way, we should mention, Grant's not his real name. It's not. It's, it's Archibald Leach. And, yes, uh, and uh, obviously somebody at Hollywood said, like, no one's going to go see him. He yeah. named Archie Leach. <laughs> uh, still a cool name, but uh, it's something, you know, I think I read an interview with Grant, and he wanted it to be really easy to say. That's why it's two syllables, Cary Grant. Ooh. So it's uh, it sticks with you. Rhythm, motion, can yeah. you dig it? <laughs> and, Shoot the steam. <laughs> and what, uh, you know, I, just reading about him and going back and reading old things and biographies is, you know, his, his dialect is really unique. He can mm-hmm. play American. He can play British and cause it's not quite British, but it's, it's not, not quite American. American. Yeah. It's, it's, not. it's this weird middle ground that yeah. we live in. And he, his cadence is so unusual and so unique. The, the last time I've heard something as unusual as it is probably Dr. Strange. Yeah. <laughs> when Benedict Cumberbatch tries to do his accent. Uh, um, it's not a bad one. It's no. just like, oh, I, I know something's being hidden here. Yeah. Um, so, and then Grant, you know, gets picked up by Paramount. He does not like Paramount nope. whatsoever. Um, and then the awful truth comes around. He also tries to get out of the awful truth, we should mention. Yeah, Because Leo McCary and him were not getting along at the time. So I think, you know, you mentioned how meticulous Hitchcock is. I think why they work so well together is because Grant was the same way. Yeah. He did not like improvising. McCary loved the improv- improvisation yeah. side of it. So they never really had a script. They had a script, but he says, okay, you're going to come in and be mad. Yeah. Let's see what happens with Irene Dunn. And I, I actually love Irene Dunn. I think she's amazing. Yeah, she wins an uh, she wins an Oscar for uh, or is nominated at yeah. least for The Awful Truth. Yeah. And uh, so he's mad and he's offers $5,000 not to do this movie. <laughs> and then there's a, there's this urban legend that McCary offered $10,000 not to have Grant in the movie, um, which is probably both true uh, because but he I will say that maybe because he is uncomfortable in it it brings out the best in him yeah uh because he has to be on his toes uh, the line that he improvises i think is the most brilliant in the whole film and it's really stupid but it's really amazing uh so it, the film is about him and irene dunn are getting a divorce and they only have a dog and so there's just this line where grant knocks on the door and she answers and he says it's my turn to see the dog <laughs> it's something along the lines of that and it's really lame and but he delivers it in such a way that you believe him and she's trying to hide him from the her fiance it's it's an awesome scene it's, and a, it's a screwball it's a it's true a definition screwball. of a screwball comedy and yeah. a screwball moment um and just the way he says i'm here to see the dog <laughs> is, is really funny and so yeah i think that's why he works with hitchcock so well is because he is really meticulous yeah and i mean you, if you look how he's put together everything about him you know, in his early films, he kind of had slick back hair. I don't know what film he changed it to. It's always parted to the left, but his hair style never changed. It has to have happened to sometime after um, 
suspicion um, yeah. or something, or maybe even after Notorious. Yeah, I don't remember. I'll have to go back and look at my... Somebody pulled the movie posters up yeah. for me right now. Through my 50 of his films I've watched. Um, but yeah, so he, I mean, he did The Awful Truth in, um, you know, his first film. Was, oh, no, Suspicion, he has it parted to the yeah, left. Yeah, he does. <laughs> I say, I'm pretty sure he does. Um, I think he does in The Awful Truth. That might be the first film he does it in. I would have to imagine so then. if Because he goes from being like a stiff, my hand is in my pocket, I'm a super suave guy from Kiss and Makeup and The 30 Day Princess to, yeah. you know. He's a little more relaxed. A little more relaxed. And, yeah. you can, and he's having fun. Right. And I mean, we, and we, before we jump right into suspicion, we have to mention that Grant at some point does try to retire. Yeah. He does eventually retire, um, has a kid. Um, he retires. Tumultuous marriages. Yeah. But, you know, has a kid eventually, completely leaves the spotlight. Um, he, uh, he dies in 1986 on like not too long before he was supposed to go on for a performance of his one man show, a conversation with Carrie Grant. That'd be awesome to see. Yeah, dude, there's I, uh, I hope rec- there's some recordings of it. Somewhere. I've heard someone's bootleg recording, like, like where they bring their own stuff mm-hmm. in there. Um, which I've heard some of these kind of before with other performers, like Dennis day did a one man show mm-hmm. where he went through the whole Jack Benny stuff, but somebody brought in their recorder and recorded the whole show. I haven't found one with conversation with Cary Grant yet. Yeah, he um, he worked for Fabergé as like an ambassador or something. He was like I or was, CEO or he, something. Yeah, he was like on the board or something. Yeah, so he kind of because he always wanted a kid, and as soon as his daughter was born, he literally retired. He, I think he he made Walk Don't Run maybe a a couple months after she was born, but then he was done. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if it's his daughter or his wife uh, Diane who said, uh, you know, people want to hear from you. People want to know what it's like to be Cary Grant. And he did an evening with Cary Grant. And I guess he loved it because he's back on stage. And yeah, and yeah, it was Iowa. He wasn't feeling well, laid down and died of a stroke. Yeah. And I, I it's really a sad story. You're reading in his like manager and people at the theater were saying you should get help. He's like, no, I'm just gonna go back to the hotel. Yeah. And yeah. I, I guess he was just ready to leave. Yeah, and, exactly. Um, but a great actor. Um, yeah, a great actor. And more importantly, a great Hitchcock character. A very great Hitchcock And character. we're going to get into it right now. Let's start off 1941 Suspicion. Uh, Suspicion, obviously one. directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, I'm going to stop saying directed by because we all know who the fuck directed these movies we're discussing. Um, screenplay by Samson Raffleson, R- Raffleson, uh Joan Harrison, and Alma Revel. Uh, Joan Harrison, um, Hitchcock's... Uh, original protege slash secretary who becomes a great producer in her own right and eventually ends up running a lot of the Alfred Hitchcock presents and Alma Revel, Mrs. Hitchcock, um, who wasn't credited on every script, but essentially helped co-run the show. Um, the most famous quote, um, around Hitchcock's life is the Hitchcock touch had four hands and two of them were Alma's. That was, uh, uh, Charles Champlin, um, a, a article writer for, I think, the Los Angeles Times. Um, and uh, Suspicion is based on a novel called Before the Fact from 1932, um, written by Francis Ellis. Uh, the movie stars Cary Grant, Joan Fontaine, Sir Cedric Hardwick, Nigel Bruce, and Dame Mae Whitty. Um, Suspicion is done at RKO. They originally had tried to do it prior to Hitchcock even becoming involved. Uh, there's another script read by Westinson Inger uh, that is available now in the national in, in their private library. Um, but then Hitchcock comes on board and 
he tries to stick pretty close to the novel. Uh, the novel, the story basically talks about uh, a woman who is of wealth, who marries a scoundrel. And when she does not give into his demands to have her inheritance money be their income, he kind of starts acting suspicious and she believes that she's killing people in order to eventually get to her to get her, her, her money. Um, the original novel ends very darkly. Um, it essentially ends with her knowingly drinking poison that her husband gives her. Um, and then, but before then writing a letter to her mother explaining that she loves Johnny too much to, to turn him in. Um, which is a very dark concept for the time period we're discussing, which is the 30s and the 40s. And in a book, you can get away with it. Um, and this isn't the first time Hitchcock's had to change something in a novel to uh, adjust for the censors or studio expectations. Rebecca obviously changes a lot in order to make Laurence Olivier's character much more likable. Uh, and then the same goes with Cary Grant. Um the new ending of the film, the one that we all know today, is that turns out, unfortunately, he's kind of tangentially involved in coincidences. Uh, and they, uh, him and Joan Fontaine walk off into the sunset. However, the majority of Cary Grant in that film is the darkest you'll ever see Cary Grant get easily. Well, maybe you know of one that I don't. Uh, so, yeah, uh uh, Suspicion is a great film, and the reason it's so good is because, you're right, Cary Grant is really dark in it, and it plays against what he's normally known for, mm -hmm. and it's really suspenseful, and even though nothing really happens, I don't know if that makes any sense, it's it's the this, this setup for something to happen. Yeah, it's, and it's all anticipation, like because, literally the definition of suspense. Yeah, because will. there, you know, there's a scene where... Um, he comes back and he has all these gifts for all his friends and for her. Mm -hmm. And she's like, how did you get this? You stole it from somebody. He's like, no, I won it gambling. Yeah. And she, she doesn't believe him. But it turns out he really won it on a racehorse. And, um, you know, the, the shot of Grant holding the milk is really unique and it's really um, iconic. Did you know that in order to make that shot work, Hitchcock put a little light inside the glass of milk? Yes. And it was to illuminate the glass of milk in the darkness of that scene as he's coming up the staircase. And so that's not even the climax of the film because... No. <laughs> um, so I, they must know... People must have known the novel because, you know, that is maybe three-quarters of the way through. Mm -hmm. So he's, you know, he's coming up and it's really, oh, she knows he's going to be poisoned because she writes a letter and it's like, oh, it's going to be poisoned. And she drinks it anyways and nothing happens. And then they're on the drive and... She's freaking out, and he the door swings open. He just saves her. He's... I rewatched the movie. She doesn't drink it. She just lets it sit there. Oh, that's and right. Then, that's and right. then the following shot is just, it's still there. That's which right. I'm like that milk's gone. It's fucking sour. Like, <laughs> throw that shit out. Um, but yeah, it's it's really awesome. I the only movie that I can say that maybe Grant's a touch darker in is because he kills people in it. Is Mister Lucky? Um, that's right. We're talking about this uh, a few. Weeks I mean, back. he literally curb stomps a guy in it. So. Um, but is he a bad guy? In it? Uh, well, I mean, he's not a good dude. He oh. the reason he takes the name in um, Mr. Lucky is because he doesn't want to go to the war and he's going to get drafted. So they had uh, oh, he's a, a card. Yeah. So they had a card where a guy had 
like some ailment that wouldn't allow him to go to war. Okay, um, so so Grant has always neared the edge yes. of villainy, but never quite touched it, never tasted yeah, it. Yeah, and I mean, this is a one, too, where the producer's like, you can't have Cary Grant kill somebody. Right, and, <laughs> you know, Hitchcock's response intelligently is, why the fuck not? Yeah. And he, and <laughs> I don't I, know if that's what he actually said. And Grant was on board with being the bad guy. Yeah. But back then, the studios controlled everything, so at the end of the day, if they didn't want him to be the bad guy, yeah. he's not going to be the bad guy. Right. Because I thought it would have been really fascinating and it always makes me wonder if there is a deleted scene somewhere where grant throws her off the cliff or something you know what i mean um sorry darling because you know <laughs> next time she'll learn to close the door um the, uh but you know that scene shot really well too is you know driving because you what hitchcock does so well is um, whether it's his damsels in distress, usually they find a way to get themselves out of it. They're much more resourceful yeah. than most heroines in films of that era. Exactly. Especially. So, you know, that one, you're in Joan Fontaine's shoes throughout the whole film mm -hmm. because Cary Grant is kind of an ass. Yeah. You know, he's he's handsome. He, you like him. But then you're like, why are you talking about driving to the cliff and with your friend? and Which the psychological implication yeah. for Grant throughout that entire film is that he's never really been raised by a parent. Yeah. Um, which, as we discussed, a lot of the Hitchcock films he does are like tangentially tied to him, whether intentionally or in unintentionally, to him as a person. So it's why he's able to kind of move into that realm pretty easily. Um, but the, you know, he's not specifically like dastardly but yeah he, but his it's implied it's implied and it's also like when he does turn dark if you don't know the end of the film then you're walking into it going like oh he's just like this creepy asshole but knowing the end of the film the intention of the psychological aspect is that she's not focused she's only focused on herself and mm -hmm. not focused on him yeah. which I do think is shortchanges her as a character sometimes. Sometimes. But um, at the end of the day, though, you are watching Grant become sinister at the drop of a dime. Like, he could be happy one minute, and then the next he's dark and brooding. Yeah. Um, which is very uh, uh, apparent in the scene when him and Beaky are going over the real estate plans. Yeah. Uh, but Beaky, played by Nigel Bruce, who, uh, if you don't know who Nigel Bruce is, he was the original Dr. Watson in the uh, Ra Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, Sherlock Holmes films. He's in two Hitchcock films, and this is, I think, the one where he's the mo has the most to do. Um, and I think he... I, I'm amazed that he wasn't in more Hitchcock films until you learn that he was apparently part of a round table of British actors who emigrated that kind of decided Hitchcock Hitchcock wasn't cool enough to be in their club. <laughs> um, so, and that a lot of that has to do with the fact that Hitchcock, uh, amongst others, didn't go back to Europe to help fight the war, but there's a lot of like complicated elements within that. Yeah. Um, when we have Grant in this film though, it starts off right away train already in a tunnel light comes up and you see Cary Grant and he's already a scoundrel from the get-go. Yeah. But there's something about him you want to like. And then as the movie kind of moves and weaves forward, you get the picture of a man who seems like he's trying to do the right thing but does not have the tools in his yeah. head to do so. By the time you get to the end, it's kind of unclear if he's even learned his lesson. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what is known is that the one mistake he didn't make was marrying her. Um and which he keeps saying throughout the entire film. And that's like one of those things 
because of the ending we have, I do believe it. Yeah, it's a it's a film that is actually the last Hitchcock Grant film I saw, mm-hmm. um, and I th- I think when you rewatch, I've watched about three or four times, um, but when you watch it. Uh, with knowing the ending, mm-hmm. you see little things in the performance. You see little things in the script. You see little things uh, that you might have missed the first time. Yeah, I was. And that's it, how I watched it last night. Yeah, yeah. you know, because you, you you see that he is actually trying to do the right thing, but mm-hmm. you already touched on it. He doesn't know how to do the right thing because he's a thief. Yeah, and he's a scoundrel. Yeah, uh, but he knows he loves Joan Fontaine, and so exactly one of the best lines that Joan Fontaine has in the movie is like, "You're just a baby." I'm just yeah. like, yeah, yeah. he's a big old man, he, baby. <laughs> he, he needs to learn to grow up. And, exactly. Um, he um, doesn't always make the right choices. Right. And it's also, the, it's a Hitchcock film that you start digging into a lot of his signature tropes and stuff. Um, what, one of which, obviously, we discussed, which is the milk. But you also have a lot of just the use the of... The MacGuffin. The MacGuffin, yes. <laughs> the rear use of rear projection, which there's yeah. a lot of driving in this movie. There is. There's a lot of driving. There's a lot of driving in in a lot of the films he did with Hitchcock. There is. Um, and we'll talk about one of the most famous of the driving sequences. Um, but um, Suspicion opens up, ends up getting nominated for Best Picture. Sure. Um, and Joan Fontaine wins Best Actress, which arguably she's actually winning for Rebecca, <laughs> but didn't win for Rebecca. Yep. Um, and uh, we'll get into the Rebecca thing in another episode. Um, but... Grant's not nominated. And yep. this is a frequent problem with the Academy because of the fact that he went independent. Yep. Um, the only two nominations he gets are for Penny Serenade and... Um, None But the Lonely Hearts. None But the Lonely Hearts, yeah. And so the discussion has come up within the discussion of Grant is, you know, if you were to give him an Oscar for anything, what would it be? And my my argument is to give it to him for Notorious for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. Because I think when we get into that next, there's yeah. a f- lot of stuff at play here. However, I'd also give it to North by Northwest because he he basically does the equivalent of what Leo does in The Revenant, which is just go for broke and do every fucking thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I, you know, I didn't really think about it too much. It's a travesty because he's... So good in so many films. Or The Awful um, Truth. Even. Yeah, I, The Awful Truth, I can see it. I mean, he's so good in that. I mean, I just watched A Room for One More. He's so great in that. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Lucky. I mean, he's so good in films, but he kind of got blackballed from the Academy for being independent. Right. Which now is, I mean, it's not even a thing anymore. So Yeah, and today the Academy has way more problems than just that one grant <laughs> issue. Yeah. Uh, don't see Green Book, guys. Anyway, <laughs> um, so now we're going to move on to Notorious, 1946. I love this film. Uh, it is a wonderful film. Uh, written by Ben Hecht, a uh, frequent collaborator of Mr. Hitchcock's. Um, Roy Webb does the music, and I love the opening theme to Notorious. Yeah. I, I like how it kind of kicks in with dire danger and then kind of moves into a soft melody. Yeah. Um, and you have uh, the you have kind of like the birth of modern espionage films in this film. Not, not he was always involved with espionage films, but this one's kind of like has the most, like the beginnings of the modern elements that we start to see in films today. Um, But notorious tells the story of a woman whose father is tried, convicted um, of uh, treason uh, in the U S giving up, basically giving the Nazi secrets 
Um, she is recruited by a man named Devlin, Devlin, <laughs> uh, played by Cary Grant, to uh, to infiltrate another Nazi organizer, played by Claude Rains. And, of course, the woman in question we're talking about is the lovely Ingrid Bergman. Um, this film has a lot of psychological and sexual tension pouring throughout the film. Yeah, it's like I, seeping with it. When I think of a Hitchcock movie, uh-huh. uh, Notorious is one of the, I think, is the epitome of a Hitchcock film. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have the MacGuffin with the key. You have yeah. so many other things or the wine or whatever you want to call it. Um and in it, Cary Grant, too, he's, he plays kind of against type two where he's still a nice guy, but he's not that nice to Ingrid Bergman because he wants something from her. Right. And, you know, so he's I mean, the whole premise is him forcing her to be with Claude Rains. Right. You know, because, hey, this dude's a, a Nazi. And because of who your dad is, you owe us. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's pretty great. And we have to remember, for those who haven't seen Notorious, the first 20 minutes of the film, they already fall in love. Yep. It's like one of the most expressly quick love stories. <laughs> like the last time I saw something that quick in terms of romance was crazy rich Asians. Um, <laughs> like they're already together. Um, so the, uh, the, the, the most famous scene of this film arguably is that kissing scene. Mm. Um, that long, long take of Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant kissing, which, you know, a lot of things kind of jump to your head as what's more romantic and whatnot. Because, like, Ingrid Bergman seems to be involved with some of the most romantic scenes in Hollywood history, yeah. whether it's Casablanca or Notorious. Um, that pushes the tension further with allowing us to kind of, like, explore, like, well, does Devlin really love her? Uh, does is, is it really just, like, a fl- is it a fling for him or is it something more? Um, Alicia's character to me is a person who falls in line with a lot of other women who go up against Grant where she desperately wants him. Um, it's the same in Joe with Joe Fontaine in uh, suspicion where she wants him. Mm. Um, but she's, but Ingrid Bergman's also willing to play a game to toy with his heart. Um, and I think with notorious, you get a very interesting cross cut between Devlin and Alicia Alicia is more our focus, but Grant does get a lot of attention in this film. Um, the The thing that fascinates me about the film, though, hands down, uh, in regards to Grant, is how he kind of plays around with not wanting to be around women. Yeah. Now, this isn't new to Grant um, at this point. He has done this before where he's kind of not interested in pursuing anything. Like, I guess you'd call it bachelorhood. Um, but within this one, I think you get to see, you mentioned it before the darker complex, but also just kind of like somber and kind of like really heartbroken to yeah. a degree when she, when he finds out or when he, when she tells him that she's going to marry him, it kind of basically crumples his brain a little bit further to the point of almost no return, but he ends up being the best hero ever. Yeah. <laughs> Cause he just goes up there, grabs her. And does that wonderful thing with the gun with Claude Rains, <laughs> just holding it to Claude Rains, uh, which, by the way, Claude Rains, one of the best weasels Hollywood ever oh, yeah. had. Um, and I think with this film, you get a lot of Grant kind of getting to run the gamut. And this is where we start seeing a little bit more of the Hitchcock dream guy mold, where he's not going to let anything happen to Alicia, but he's also a man who's going to, you know, be his own man. Yeah. Um, the 
I think that with the persona, though, there is a little bit of like, much like suspicion, it pushes our love of Grant. Like, how much can we really like this guy? And I think that's why uh, Hitchcock casts him in these films is because we already know and love Cary Grant. Mm -hmm. So we're taking that knowledge into the movie or the theater. You're taking that with you as you go. It's baggage, yeah. It's baggage. And so when you play against type, it it works really well. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, he's still the suave, cool dude. But there's a hint of darkness to him in both films that I think play against who you expect him to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's scenes at the... I, I can point to the racetrack scene in this where he's not very nice to Ingrid Bergman's character. No, he makes her cry. Flat yeah. out makes her yeah. cry. Yeah, and so he, you, you, when you see that from Grant, you're not used to it. Yeah. You're not used to him being that harsh. Yeah. So I think that's why he becomes... Uh, I mean, Jimmy Stewart's great in Rear Window, and I love Gregory Peck in Spellbound, but, you know... Um, you, I, I think Grant's gonna be Hitchcock's best leading guy because he plays against that yeah. type. He's able to tap into the darkness that Hitchcock desires yeah. while still maintaining himself, which I think is a hard trick to balance. Sometimes it is, um, but I think Grant was a professional enough that he could he could do that, and it it makes sense. And yeah. he's he, he you know again the meticulous thing he. His performances are so nuanced that, you know, you go, oh, it's Cary Grant. He's so happy, but he's going to make the beautiful and just vulnerable woman at the racetrack cry because she's already, you know, he's playing on her emotions, too, because she's in love with him. Her dad just got <laughs> convicted to be a Nazi. <laughs> and now you're being forced to spy on another person who they believe is a Nazi by marrying him. by marrying him and, and, and being around him and his overbearing mother. Exactly. And so he's so Grant's mean to her. Oh, yeah. And so it's. It's very because I mean he loves her too, so it's it's very fascinating. It's a really it's one of my favorite Grant movies and a weird film about alcoholism, yeah. <laughs> or at least how do do you believe someone when they say they're sober? Um, like her her whole thing at the beginning of the film is just she's just getting flat out drunk at a party, wakes up hungover to Cary Grant. Actually, I love the scene in the car with uh in with them uh uh driving down the highway and getting pulled over by the cop um, because she insists on driving. Um, But throughout the film, like he doesn't believe her half the time because she's starting to get woozy little realizing that she's being poisoned. So it kind of plays off the trust. The movie's about trust. It is ultimately about who do you trust? How much do you trust somebody? And how far does that trust go? Um, And, and it ends with one of the greatest, like, shots out of a door towards a door of all time. Like Grant leaves with, with Ingrid Bergman and Claude Rains has to go back inside. Yep. (laughs) Uh, he, and it's, it's terrifying. There is a mother issue in this film, not with Grant though. It's with Claude Rains (laughs) who has the, arguably the mother from Nazi hell. (laughs) Yeah. But it also gives Claude Rains villain a little more, Depth, depth, yeah. you know, not just I'm a Nazi. Yeah, it's it's a dynamic range um, to work with. Uh, I mean, it's it makes him more devious. Like I believe that on his own, like when he's meeting with the other with the other Nazi guys and they're talking about that one guy that they've already got to you know bump off because he's talking too much or freaking out too much about a wine bottle. Um, he he's still kind of like the even keeled guy. Uh, the mother adds to that, and then when he finally figures out that Alicia is betraying him, 
that's when he snaps and becomes yeah. more devious. But even then, he loses that immediately because at the end of the day, he is still a coward by comparison to his mother. So it is, it's a theme we see running throughout a lot of Hitchcock films, not the least of which is Psycho, um, where the overbearing mother kind of overpowers the timid son. Mm-hmm. Um, so Notorious uh, d- kind of deals with a lot more than I think we were used to at the time with Hitchcock. So it then ends up like, you know, becoming one of the staples that we talk about today. Um, the film was very well received. Um, it was nominated for best supporting actor for Claude Rains, <laughs> not Grant. That's all right. <laughs> uh, but Ben Hecht was nominated for the screenplay and deservedly. So it is a very interesting film and one that apparently they had to push through the government censors because they couldn't, they didn't want them mentionally specific, specifically talking about atom bomb mm. or a bomb or anything nuclear weapons oriented because we had just come out of world war two and we were worried about Russia getting the bomb. Mm. Um, so the less you talk about it, the better, but they find a good MacGuffin within the key, mm. but also there, there, I mean, there's the pointlessness of like, it doesn't really matter what kind of weapon they're trying to develop. All you have to know is they're building a weapon. Yeah. And that scene in the wine cellar where they're looking through it and then he's got to, uh, get, get the mineral ore back in the bottle before <laughs> yeah. it's too late is really fun. It's a fun little banter scene that then turns into terrifying nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then a few years go by, we're not, uh, working together, um, as a team, uh, but, there was a little phone called Rope with Jimmy Stewart eventually in the film. Apparently Hitchcock wanted Grant for Rope. Yeah, I forget what movie Grant was doing, why he was busy. I can't. It's 48, so. So Gunga Dean. So he, he had a film Gunga Dean, I think, for over a year. Yeah. Uh, I, did I remember that? Wait, right? Gunga Dean would have been in the late 30s. Um but anyway, regardless, uh, if anybody doesn't know right. what if anybody doesn't know what Rope is, we will be talking about it eventually because it is one of the most fascinating Hitchcock films. Um, Rope is about two guys who commit a murder and then invite their professor along with a whole party to celebrate something trivial with them not realizing there's a dead body in the middle of the room, and it's all shot within a series of two takes. Uh, Mr. Blandings builds his dream home and every girl should be married would be the film set he would have okay, been involved cool. in. <laughs> every girl should be married is a great movie. Yeah. It, it, I like Mr. Blandings. Yeah, have you watched fun. Mr. Blandings? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Fun. Um, but so anyway, Rope, though, the character that Grant would have played is the professor of the two boys who commit the murder. And it's a dark role. It's a very dark role. And my estimation is that if you were never going to get Grant to be a villain – this would have been the closest you had gotten where you don't necessarily have to change him too much um, in terms of the character. The character does end up being very moralistic and aware, but there is a darkness to him. I think the only reason Grant would have been off-putting for me in that role is only because he seems to not be on the surface, the kind of guy who would believe the things James Stewart's character believes moralistically about murder like that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Jimmy Stewart too, is a little more every man relatable than Cary Grant is. Um, You almost believe he's a weather professor who has like, has had time to think about this. Whereas Grant would be a little bit more, although that might also add a different psychological bent. Yeah. I mean, it's be interesting. Um, So, but, Finally, we come back in 1955. Now, at the time, Grant was going to retire, but then Hitchcock proposed a movie in on the French Riviera with Grace Kelly, and you don't refuse that, and it's called To Catch a Thief. 
um, from 1955. Uh, the screenplay by John Michael Hayes, uh, based on the novel To Catch a Thief. Um, this is the uh, also the film where, like, you know, this is among the era where the Hitchcock style is signified, but this is one of the least Hitchcockian films in oh, that yeah. era. Uh, it's not the only least one. Um, Trouble with Harry also has a little bit of differences by comparison uh, to other Hitchcock films that we see throughout the 50s into the 60s. To Catch a Thief, though, is very much an Ocean's Eleven movie before there's Ocean's Eleven yep. movies. <laughs> um, it uh, tells the story of uh, John Robey, um, uh, or John Robey, um, a cat burglar who uh, is retired after serving in the war, getting a pardon as a result. Um, but a cat burglar has been stalking the French Riviera and stealing jewels in the same pattern as him. There's like a Mel Brooks moment too, where the police show up to his house <laughs> and he's, you know, trying to get out and stuff like that. It's, it's... one of the greatest, uh, what would you call it? Like, uh, gotcha moments are mm-hmm. you see the cars chasing each other down the Riviera and the cinematography by Robert Brooks, which Robert Brooks, which won an Oscar for this film. Uh, shows a montage of them going through the French Riviera. You see the two cars driving each other, and it's by that time you're not thinking that he couldn't be in the car. Yeah, that's not even a thought in your head. Cut to the moment when they pull him over, and it's actually his maid. Yeah, and you realize that Hitchcock and Grant have both played a trick on you, where he was back at his house the entire time. Yep. thus leading him to get on the bus where we see the Hitchcock cameo. Yeah, um, so but now he has to go to the French Riviera and figure out who is committing these robberies and on the way he meets Grace Kelly and it becomes a very much a love story about Grace Kelly falling in love with a thief. Um, the plot of the film is very unimportant. Yeah. <laughs> it's very unimportant. It's, um, it's my least favorite of their collaborations, not because it's not a good film, but um, it, I don't know. It's, it's shot nice. It's well acted. It's it li- seem, it's a light affair. It seems like it's a, an excuse to put Grace Kelly and Cary Grant in a movie. Um, which I can't think of any better reason to do. A no, movie. <laughs> that's fine too. It's uh, when I think of Hitchcock, I think of things that are a little more substantial, mm-hmm. but you know, if you ask anybody, it's a very big crowd pleaser and it's maybe Grant's second most well-known film or third, maybe charade North by Northwest and then to catch a thief. It's the one that I've heard a lot of people when I've been sending this out that people mention, and I'm always surprised Yeah, because with you have Hitchcock, especially, the, the the gamut runs vastly. There are some films nobody ever talks about, and then there's some that people talk about, but they forget that it's Hitchcock. And mm-hmm. To Catch a Thief, I think, is one that people have to look up and realize, oh, he did that. That's mine. Yeah, and you can see Hitchcock's uh, style throughout it. I mean, you you know it's a Hitchcock film when you watch it. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think just the story is different than anything he's done, and that's fine. I mean, as an artist, you should be able to. Make what you want to make, and it—I mean, it's a good movie. If you can add your visual stylistic tone to it, then it yeah. totally works. It is a chase movie, and he has always said that, like the one of the greatest inventions in cinema was the chase. Yeah. Um, because that's a lot of his movies are very much a chase, um, in different ways or another. Um, and the uh, one of the most striking visual elements outside of the firework sequence, which yes is. That's the most one of the most Hitchcockian things about that movie is that fireworks scene, um, but the scenes on the roof with the cat burglar um, up to the up to the climax, um, there is a distinct like kind of German expressionist flair to it. Uh, the colors kind of seem a little off, but they're also striking at the same time, and they kind of 
play with the silent film motif that he worked in when he was in the Gamma period back in Britain. The thing that fascinates me about the film also is that how it, a lot of Hitchcock bad guys tend to have kind of like a Bond-esque type of disfigurement or quirk about them, in which case the two cops that are chasing after Grant in this film, one of them really likes to uh, do pull-ups at the the beach. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, you have a lot of great performances in this film. Like, it's funny, Cary Grant is not the only thing to love about this film, nor is Grace Kelly. You have uh, Jesse Royce Landis, who plays Grace Kelly's mother, in what I think is the funniest Hitchcock mom of all time. Hands down, a woman who, one, is just about the same age as Grant, if not a little younger. Uh, And uh, the But the way she plays Grace Kelly's mom is astounding. Uh, It's... It's something we'll see from her again in the next film we'll discuss. But she had an ability to play off of Grant so much so that it's a shame that casting choices the way they are, we wouldn't want to put them together even though they're very close in age. Because, you know, you want – at the time you wanted – and I guess it is still true today – older man with a with a slightly younger girl or something like that just to kind of like it looks more glamorous to a degree for some reason. I don't fucking know. Yeah, it's uh, one of those things too where – Grant at a point said he's not going to be chasing women anymore. They need to be chasing me. Yeah. And that's uh, pretty much the standard for his films. Which, after and again, we, we were talking about this before, but Kelly goes after him. He doesn't want a relationship. He nope. wants to clear his name to go <laughs> yep. back home. He does not. And it's the same with the Danielle character, uh, who is the gal she taught stuff to during the war. Uh, for cap in terms of thieving and stuff, she she's like kind of pursuing him too, but as you find out later with the twist, which is kind of convenient, she's mainly just trying to throw him off a trail. Um, the the only thing about this film that to me is a little off is that there are certain like expositional things at the end that are a little unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think once we see Danielle. That we need Grant saying, I knew it was you. Just your father did taught you how to do that during the war. <laughs> I'm like, I don't need yeah. that. It's fine. Just just toss her off the building and have her admit to it. That's fine. Yep. Um, I'm going to let go. But the uh, and then also the Grace Kelly uh, uh, filming this, making this film in Monaco and the French Riviera. She later becomes the princess of Monaco. She does. Uh, and. I can't confirm this. Like I was reading this a little bit, but the road she died in an automobile accident, having yep. a stroke while driving on a road. It's assumed that the road was the road they were driving down in that movie, and that the, and that the the final spot was the, the spot Hitchcock the did it to her. <laughs> I'll teach you to become a princess. Yeah. <laughs> Say no to my movies. <laughs> no, you, you'll if you'll be in money or you'll be in hell. <laughs> Um, but the movie uh, for Paramount, which, by the way, this is the only movie to this day that Paramount still owns of Hitchcock's, and Hitchcock really? had a long Paramount contract. You know why? Because the other films are now owned by Universal MCA uh, because of that big Didn't he buyout. have his own office on the Paramount lot? He did, uh, but he had moved to Universal around the late 50s at mm. that point. Um it's mainly because of Alfred Hitchcock presents, presents, which is, I believe, where they were filming parts of, uh, or at okay. least had their Shamley offices. Uh, the podcast is called the Shamley Silhouette because Shamley was his production company for the television show, 
and that's where we get that famous silhouette. Uh, so now you know the origin of that bullshit. Uh, <laughs> um, I actually like the score too by Lynn Murray. Yeah, uh, it's it's a fun light kind of a it's a fun movie. area fair. Um, the film uh, had kind of a mixed reception uh, by critics and stuff, uh, but uh, now we regard it in a high esteem. Uh, Robert Burks, as I said, won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography, uh, while the art direction and the costume design were nominated. And Edith Head, the costume designer, frequent Hitchcock collaborator, uh, I don't think these are the most elegant of her gowns, but Grace Kelly's dress in that ball sequence. Well, it helps that Grace Kelly is an amazingly beautiful woman. So it's easy to make her even look more beautiful. And now finally we get to the the creme de la creme of Hitchcock movies and Cary Grant movies for that matter. Is, arguably. Is to catch with Eve Grant's first color picture? It is. Oh, wow. I just thought of that. And it, cause did it scare people when they finally saw his tan? No, they're like, <laughs> man, that dude is sexy. <laughs> I can't, it is. It's the first I, I just imagine, colored Grant film. I just imagine every woman in America being like John Raphael, like that guy is fire. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but now we get, though, like I say, to the cream of the crop, which is uh, North by Northwest, uh, 1959, uh, written by Ernest Lehman, cinematography by Robert Burks, edited by Tom uh, George Tomasini, and music by Bernard Herman, which we're finally at Bernard Herman in this uh, period. And Bernard Herman, you know, arguably one of the greatest composers in film history, film yeah. score history, uh, before obviously John Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, Bernard Herman prior to this, you know, he does Citizen Kane and he does um, uh, other kind of films throughout the 40s before he teams up with Hitchcock. Um, and he starts with The Trouble with Harry with Hitchcock, but then he kind of – but then he gets to go forward. And I think the last thing they work on together is um, uh, 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 Marnie uh, because then they were going to do the next one after it together, but then they had a falling out. Um but North by Northwest is the ultimate Hitchcock film. Yeah. It's uh tells the story of Richard Thornhill, a uh a bumbling ad executive who <laughs> yeah. gets mistaken for a spy because he <laughs> looks so good. Yeah, and also he calls his name out wrong at the wrong place at the wrong time at a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> um and He's uh, so believable. he But so James Mason's out to kill him. Uh other people are out to kill him. Eva Marie Saints out to to at She's least beautiful. capture him and kill him. She is gorgeous in yeah. the movie. Oh my god! Yep. We watch. She looks great in 4K. I will tell you that she yeah. looks great in 4K. <laughs> um, and uh, it all leads to a big old climax at Mount Rushmore. Much like To Catch a Thief, I feel like the plot doesn't matter too much as much as the sequences themselves. It doesn't. But I think why this one is a little more well regarded is because I think that the script's more playful mm-hmm. um, and it mixes in the suspense pretty well. I mean, everyone knows the crop dusting scene, and it's, you know, that starts off so innocent. I mean, he's dropped off in the middle of nowhere. And that shot lasts for a long time. It's a high, oh, yeah. it's a high crane shot that Burke's got where it's just sitting there. The bus comes in, leaves him, and then it kind of holds for about another two minutes before it goes back to him, and it just kind of plays on the silence. And one thing about Hitchcock that uh, it's... Sh- it, it kind of becomes apparent as you watch his films, but it shouldn't come as a surprise. He comes up from the silent film era. He does believe in pure cinema, which is the mm-hmm. idea that you should not have to tell a film with just dialogue. You should be able to tell it straight through the images. That whole sequence is 
pretty much That's silent. That's the epitome of it. Yeah. So what he does, though, in a lot of his films, and especially this one, the only sound effects you hear are necessary ones. Everything else is literally turned down. Yeah. Like oh, to to well, I mean, nothing. I mean, you you have a villain in the scene that's an airplane, and the sound of the biplane going, you know, is is very deliberate. Yeah, and his building a suspense is so brilliant in that film that when a bus comes, you yep. get worried. Yep. When a guy gets off a bus, you get worried. Like just those tiny sounds kind of hit perfectly. Yeah, and that's you know we talked about Joan Fontaine and suspicion. This is Thornhill in you know, North by Northwest, he's stuck. Yeah. So you're wrong with a ride with him and you're just as clueless as he is going, what in the hell is going on here? Who's this dude who just got off the bus? And why is a plane trying to kill me? It's, it's very fascinating. Why do I have to climb up the president's nose? See all these things yep. that come. Why is James Mason so bored? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I made that claim a couple weeks ago. James Mason is the most bored villain in cinematic history. <laughs> um, but, um, and you, uh, you you get the perfection of the Hitchcock mold by this point of who Hitchcock would want to be mm-hmm. as opposed to who Hitchcock is. And Cary Grant's performance is literally like by this point, they've worked together so much that he knows the beats. Yeah. There's actually a story about so the hotel where they filmed the scene where he's uh, having going to have dinner before he calls out his name and then gets taken away. Uh, that was the Plaza Hotel. He had a room at the Plaza, mm. and I guess somebody went up to Hitchcock and said, "Like, aren't you going to tell him how to walk through the lobby?" He's like, "He's been walking down this lobby for so many years. Like, I'm not going to tell him how to walk through his own lobby." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is like similar to just like I'm not going to tell Cary Grant what the fuck to do. Like, yeah. he knows exactly what the fuck he's <laughs> say doing. The lines. Um, say the fucking lines. Um, but uh, and then you also get the. F- the the kind of peak now we we didn't mention it to catch a thief but john roby's past is that of a man who was an acrobat who basically ran away from home so you kind of bleed in some of grant's personal life into to catch a thief arguably uh the mother issues in this film while not exactly grants are allow him to play off of something there yeah a bit of an overbearing mother. And he basically like in suspicion is a child. He has not really had a sustaining force in his life. Now, granted, these are based on concepts from the forties and the fifties, but they do apply today. Um, this is also a performance where Grant gets to literally do everything. Yeah. I mean, everything. I don't think there's anything funnier to my mind in terms of Grant than watching that scene in the jail when he's calling his mom drunk. Yeah. That is, <laughs> That is some great drunk acting. <laughs> like he's yep. he, he's treating it super seriously. He is he has been through hell, but this the situation yep. is too delightful. I agree. I agree. Um, and you you get a lot of the man in peril, but knows he's innocent. He's still able to be charming while in terrible danger, which to me is the epitome of the Hitchcock mold that you want out of your idealistic hero. Mm. Um, it also kind of follows the plot, the, the plot line we've been discussing about Hitchcock being the pursuee and not the pursuer uh, when it comes to women. Although in Eva Marie Saint's case, I believe it's kind of matched up because yeah. she is after him, but not for the reasons that would normally be part of the Grant persona. Yeah, because eventually she falls for him. Right, and, and he he equally does try to pursue oh, her yeah, to a yeah, certain yeah. extent. So it's almost like the first, or not the first, but like it's one of the few Grant films where he is actively pursuing someone to an extent. Um, it's more so just to get information to get himself cleared. But 
you can always tell that there's a little it's Eva Marie Saint. Of course you're gonna be a little in love with her. Yeah. Um and there's a something that we haven't discussed though. He did have acrobatic training, he had training in vaudeville, went through the gamut of performing live on your feet and do having to do things that are very risky. Um it's a fact that he did a lot of his own stunts in his films. Um it was almost like he's the Tom Cruise of his yeah, era, that's <laughs> right. Know, which kind of now makes me understand you more, Ryan. There you go. <laughs> um, but the scene in the crop, the cross of crop dusting scene, it's not all shot on location. Um, but the sh- the stunts are grand. Um, the scene where he's ducking the plane uh, is shot on a stage, but he's having to kind of oh, plop yeah. down and down. And there was a scene that connects to it where he goes underneath a truck. Uh, apparently they didn't get the right amount of chalk on him, so they had to go back and reshoot that thing because, like, the, by that point, he was about, supposed to be all dirtied up. Um, so he was inc- an incredibly utilitous actor. He oh, was yeah. able to kind of run the gamut, not say, just on the persona. Go see stuff. the awful truth. Exactly. You can see how how physical and how great he is. He's in that. light on his feet yeah. knows how to fucking dance is what he knows how to do. Yeah. Um, and by the end of North by Northwest... We started off in suspicion with uh, coming out of a train tunnel. Where do we go at the end of North by Northwest? Into a train tunnel. Such a metaphor. Yeah, because yeah, they're about to fuck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, I love that's like one of the best edits. It's not that, but it's the when she's still pulling, he's still pulling her up yeah. Mount Rushmore and just, come on over, Mrs. Thornhill. Yeah. I just think like nobody's ever tried to do that anymore, to my knowledge. Like no. Nobody's tried to pull that trick on us again and i think it may be only hitchcock can do that probably you'd have to like you'd have to have balls to try to pull that off i'd feel yeah like i don't even think like like brian de palma is known for ripping off hitchcock uh i i or not ripping up but homaging him uh i don't think even de palma could get away with that because uh, it's yeah. just something so specific to hitchcock's flight of fancy oh yeah which we haven't really talked about it but the details in Hitchcock films, and especially the Grant films, the details are not as important as the story as a whole. Um, I think it's arguably safe to say that we, as when we go to watch a movie, sometimes we get bogged in some details to a degree, um, partially because we kind of get invested, especially with superhero films, we get a little meticulous. Um, I, I know I do because when I see certain details, I'm like, well, that doesn't match up with this thing that they said earlier, blah, blah, blah. But the beauty of Hitchcock films, and even this, and especially North by Northwest in particular, is that the the particulars aren't as important as the sum of, as the whole. Um, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So it's very much the escapist fare. Yeah. So we we kind of end the Grant run on a high note of pure fantasy and escapism, and it was very well received, like super yeah. well received. So much so that when Paramount was asking for their last film on the Hitchcock contract, they wanted something like this film. And instead, they got Psycho. (laughs) Which, I mean, if I were Paramount and I was hearing that idea, I would be like, fuck no. (laughs) You're going to do what now? (laughs) Both become super iconic. Yeah. Uh, The film was nominated for three Academy Awards for editing, art direction, um, and original screenplay by Ernie Lehman. the two of the three of the awards went to Ben Hur instead, and the other went to Pillow Talk. Um, again, the Academy has no idea what the fuck yeah. it's doing. Ben Hur, uh, yeah, but uh, but it is high on the uh, AFI. Oh, uh, it's been selected by the National Film Registry. Uh, it's it's a film that is 
immensely enjoyable to this very day. Oh, yeah, it's an amazing film. Do you have a favorite scene in the film? Um, man, that's a tough one. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's too many. I do ones. like the scene when he's in the forest talking um, before they go to the house. Right. Uh, I love the banter there. I love I love when he's inside the house and he's sneaking around. Um, oh, that is a great moment. Yeah. Uh, that's when Martin Landau finds out that the gun is fake. Yeah. Oh, man, that's tough. I, 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 I usually like little subtle things more mm-hmm. um, than, you know, the big bombastic stuff. Um, he does a couple uh, looks and I don't know. You know. I have to think about it. I really enjoy the film. I don't know if I can pinpoint one that's my favorite moment in it, though. Um, I, I love the I, I would have to say I love the uh, the scene in the dining car. Yeah. Lot. Um, it's, it's sexy without being too overtly sexy. Yeah, it's so it's like, awesome. it's, it's like, it's, it's a nice affair. He's wearing sunglasses the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> he just looks cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a film that I love and cherish so much that I have a hard time picking a favorite moment. It's like when people ask me what my favorite scene in army of darkness is. He's like, you can't, I don't know. I don't know. I just, as a whole, I just love the film so much, uh, North by Northwest or the awful truth or charade. I don't know if I can pinpoint like a moment in the films that I love Cary Grant the most in. Right. Um, where something like Room for One More, I can point to him taking, you know, the suitcase back up the stairs and keeping the little orphan girl with them. Yeah. But I, you only know about that scene because you knows how to read. Yes. <laughs> oh, God, I'm, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I still need to see this movie because I love that fucking line. Um, <laughs> but so, yeah, so that movie is so well done and it's so amazing. I don't know if I can pick a favorite moment from it, um, but the dining car is amazing. Um, Anytime it's just him and Ava St. Marie, I really like it. Um, I like when it's stripped away um, because it, the the fantasy or the crop dusting or the Mount Rushmore or the scene inside the restaurant Mount Rushmore, you know, they're trying, they're propelling the story. But I, I like more of the intimate moments. So you're ready for a little goof, though, at the scene inside the Mount Rushmore restaurant. Uh, it's very infamous. Yeah. Uh, so... If, for anybody who hasn't seen it, there is a confrontation between Grant Mason and Eva Marie Saint and I guess Landau in the restaurant next to Mount Rushmore. And it's a wide shot. And I believe it's Grant's getting ready to shoot. Mm-hmm. And before there's an extra in the background, it's a little kid who already anticipates the bang <laughs> and plugs his ears approximately five to ten seconds before Grant even fires the gun. And it's it's clear as day. You can see yeah. it You know, there's a, su- there's, a, there's a subtle one in there, too, that I sent you the the gif of it, or the gif, or what do you want to call him, mm-hmm. um, where Grant's reacting to the car steering, and yeah. the dude next to him doesn't, so he kind of falls into him to yeah. make him say, hey, you're supposed to be acting. <laughs> <laughs> Perform, damn it. Perform. Yeah. <laughs> um, Hitch, it, I cannot work with someone who doesn't react to the car moving. It's not. Well, and actually, in, in To Catch a Thief, uh, the there's uh, when they kind of when they're going it back into the car to drive off before she discovers that he or find or reveals that she knows who he is. Uh, you can see studio lights in the fucking rearview oh, yeah. mirror. So, you know, like. It happens. These are and, the, and some of these things are just overt mistakes, but some of them are also ones you finally catch when the film's been upscaled and restored and remastered. You're just like, oh, I don't think they counted for that much clarity. Um, yep. So that's basically the end, though. Uh-oh. After this, we don't get any more Grant and Hitch together. 
He doesn't do um, many more movies. Either. I think he does like three or four more. Real. Although there was one that could have been, but Mr. Grant, rightfully so for the sake of his health, decided that he wouldn't want to do a series as a suave sex addict detective yeah. or d- just super spy, spy yeah. known as James Bond. That... And I think, and I believe Hitchcock was like also offered it like within the combination of yeah. that realm with Grant. I don't feel like either of them would have. Oh, he would have been good as James Bond, but they, they would have been good. But he didn't need to do it. You didn't need to do it, and I think that they're of a different mindscape to do it. You know, I, I think Connery kind of fits the mold yeah. better just because he's willing to kind of jump in, whereas Grant is a little more established. Yeah, and I think Grant maybe been a little too old at that point. Exactly, and I mean, people and he was about... already disenfranchised with Hollywood. So, yes. being part of a franchise literally probably wasn't that appealing to him. Yeah, even though, like, well, and even though James Bond was much more like it's Eon and it's more out in Britain per se, mm-hmm. it's still that same idea of just like I don't want to be under contract to somebody. I don't exactly. Want to be running to a I'm pretty sure that's might have been the most part is he'd have to sign a contract saying I'm going to do two, three, four of these films, and he's no way he was going to do he's that. He's just like, can't I just do Dr. No? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wait, wait, can we do the Goldfinger one first? Like, <laughs> that'd be fun. I want to see a girl naked in gold. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they don't work together again, although uh, they do keep in touch. When did Hitch die? Hitch died in 1980. Oh, so a few years before Grant. Yeah, um, and uh, Grant appeared at the AFI tribute for him. Uh, amongst a slew of other people. He didn't make too big a speech, but he said, here's too many more, and he was sitting right next to Hitch at the event. Uh, Grant's not really a big publicity guy. No. He's really, really private. But he obviously came out for Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He would come do. out for his friends and stuff. Yeah. So so that wraps up, essentially, their, their team up together. And I guess, ultimately, what you get from the Grant Hitchcock mold is... It's basically any director who makes a movie, it, to my mind, a lot of them project their ideals and their, like, what what could they have if they ha- could have anything in the world? And I think with the Hitchcock-Grant collaboration, it really is Hitchcock would have loved to have been Cary Grant. And he got to put him in four adventures where he could explore the different cosmos of that dream. Um, and also, he knows a talent when he sees it, and he knows how to play up the unextraordinary man in an extraordinary situation. And that's what Grant is able to do, is able to play in every man who gets put into the most ridiculous positions. I mean, bringing up baby is a ridiculous concept. (laughs) But it is done well because you have someone like Grant in there and because you have someone like Hepburn coming in. Um, I mean, like, not even Howard Hawks is, like, necessarily, to me, the biggest equation of that movie. It is really dependent on its stars. Um, And... You also get, like, it's the most escapist you get with Hitchcock is with Grant. Yeah. That is the most, like, and it's the less, uh, like, even with, even suspicion as dark as it is, it still has a lightness to it. Oh, yeah. And a a lot of humor. Um, I think it just comes through Grant naturally. is is always going to be likable, and he's always going to be the guy you root for. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, too, why in Suspicion, the studio's like, no, you can't have him kill people, because... One, maybe people back then wouldn't believe it. Is there something that you would have liked to see them do uh, together, uh, whether in between that time or even after North um, by Northwest? I mean, I... I know it's tough with Legacy, but, like, go ahead and go for Broke on it. Like, yeah, I mean, could... I, I I always thought um, that he'd been, he would have been great in Rear Window. Um, mm. 
Ah, oh, man. Do you think he would? You would believe him not wanting to marry Grace Kelly? <laughs> Actually, you would. Yeah. Because he doesn't want that. Would oh fuck. So there. I mean, there's a couple. I, I oh, think. Oh, can we go back and change that? <laughs> but here's the thing: is I never want to disparage Jimmy Stewart because I love Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Um. So he's amazing in the film. I can't think of a film that I think in the four films that he did with Hitchcock, I think is exactly what he needed to do uh-huh. because I think he was the perfect person for those roles. I don't know of another movie where he could have been. I got that one guy because go ahead. Torn curtain. Uh, it's a film with Paul Newman and Julie Andrews. It's a Hitchcock film. Uh, it, he originally wanted grant for the movie. Although two things were wrong with it. One grant retired, but I think grant might've come out to do he it. Might have. Uh, but the other issue is is that the Torn Curtain comes after Marnie. Marnie's not a success, so Hitchcock gets put on restraints by Universal at the time. Um, but that's basically the end of Hitchcock and Grant. They create that mold that has delighted so many people for so many years. Um, I want to jump in, though, really quickly. You've already kind of answered this, but you have a lot of other favorites of Grant films, obviously, and you already discussed psycho as probably your favorite hitchcock film is there any other hitchcock film that you would recommend to somebody oh yeah i mean easy i mean if you want um like a really tight move move, moves fast i love dial m for murder Mm -hmm. um i vertigo is amazing yeah vertigo is going to be an interesting discussion uh you know the birds like i said is my first one yeah um which by the way if you watch the birds today uh, on Blu-ray, it doesn't. It's one of those films that where the sodium pentothal process, the 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 not sodium pentothal, the sodium processing um, for plates for special effects, it doesn't distract. Like the yeah. lines are not there. You know, if you're you're gonna have James on, and I mean, Rebecca's an amazing film. Yeah. Um, if you want to get some Criterion's that I own that are really fun to watch because they have great things, uh, you go uh, to his house. <laughs> yeah, uh, Foreign Correspondent is a fun one, and uh, The Lady Vanishes is pretty good. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I really like Hitchcock. I don't, um, and Spellbound. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could probably list off the top of my head twenty, thirty movies of his you can watch, um, but. You know, I mean, Rear Window is an amazing thing. If you ask me, I still think North by Northwest is Hitchcock's maybe best movie. Um, I think Psycho is my favorite of his just because I like horror. Um, Which, and it is the granddaddy of a lot of things that you and I both love. Like, I love Halloween. You're a Friday the 13th guy. And Friday the 13th holds lineage within Psycho to an extent. It's mainly... It's funny as I think that and we and I'll definitely talk more about it when I talk psycho with my guests for that one. But psycho to me, uh, it's it, you know, it's funny. How do I explain this? You remember in the Friday the 13th documentary where Sean Cunningham says, I think the imitators got all the thing did all the things I got wrong than the things I did right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's how people have extrapolated psycho to a certain extent yeah. because psycho inherently is not so much a horror movie as it is a thriller. I, yeah, I'd say, I mean, it's literally a psychological thriller Yeah, and you're dealing with someone who has mental health issues and has mommy issues. And it's so much more, I mean, it's so iconic for, uh, you know, the shower scene. Um, but you know, I, I would say the scene beforehand, uh, where Janet Lee is eating. Uh, yeah. Just eating or talking to Norman Bates in, um, 
in his in, in his like I his guess study study. Yeah. yeah, I think a shot is maybe some of the best shots that Hitchcock's done with two people talking and a master class on how to be an actor. I thought you were going to say the hole in the wall. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, because it, it's Ryan. Just, no, it's just so well done, and Anthony Perkins is so great in it. Um, if you, you if you get past the sensationalism of the shower scene and the murders and just boil it down to a character study, I think it's an amazing film. And it's still ambitious as heck. If you can walk, if you are able to walk into Psycho Blank, you will be amazed by it because of the what they do with Janet Lee. Yeah, but also just how it's funny because I was rewatching it the other day, and I can, I'm able to watch it in two ways. I can watch it as a person who's never heard of Psycho, and I'm able to watch it as a person who's seen Psycho a hundred times. I love watching it the first way, though, because I like watching what Anthony Perkins does and yeah. suspecting him the entire time, uh, but not suspecting him the way I yeah. would be expecting him. I, I, I suspect him as a, an accomplice. I don't suspect him as someone wearing Mother's wig, um, which, to me, it kind of like it, it lays the groundwork for a lot of what we think of Hitchcock, but also what we think of horror films. Oh, I agree. And I don't think uh, you, you can't really. And the thing I like about Hitchcock, that you can't really box him in somewhere. He's kind um, of all over the place. He's all over the place. It's um, I mean, a lot of them are thrillers or suspense. I mean, he's a master of suspense. I yeah. Mean, the reason he has that. But um, you can deconstruct his filmography in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to catch a thief doesn't really fall under any of them. It kind of falls into comedy, which he yeah. did a few of them. He did yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Smith in uh, 1941 with Carol Lombard, but he also does, um, does trouble with Harry, which upon revisiting, I think that might be in my top 10 of mm. Hitchcock personal because of how it is one of the Hitchcock films where Hitchcock said like, look, what if I just put in everything I thought was fucking funny yeah, <laughs> and it works. And, and that's, you can't, What's great about Hitchcock? You can't really like lock him down. He's yeah. gonna do what he wants to do, and um, yeah, yeah. And um, so we're gonna do a little segment I want to try out called the Hitchcock Cameo Corner. Um, this is a segment where I'm gonna try with the help of Ryan to figure out what happens to the characters that Hitchcock plays in his movies. He's usually only in there for about five or ten seconds, but. Two of the films we discussed have some of the most obvious and or famous cameos that Hitchcock ever did. Um, the first one we'll bring up is North by Northwest, which literally has him chasing after a bus after the words directed by Alfred Hitchcock go away. Now, he misses that bus. My assumption is he got on another bus, got to an airport, and then traveled to France. He was going to go sightsee. He was going to go have some fun. And he gets on another bus. It's like a local local village bus near the French Riviera. And you know, he's thinking like, there's no way I'm going to bump into anybody silly or any like like any ad executive and whatnot. But lo and behold, he runs into that ad executive's long lost brother, John Roby, on the bus. So it's basically Hitchcock. Went it's all from, connected. Hitchcock went from New York to France. That's the same guy on the bus. It has to be the same guy <laughs> on the bus. Thus. North by Northwest is the best prequel ever made. <laughs> the original Marvel Cinematic Universe. Exactly. The Hitch the Hitchcock cinema the, the Cock Cinematic Universe. Yeah. The, the C- HCU. The HCU. I love it. I love it. Psycho is somehow connected to Mr. and Mrs. Smith through very devious ways. Um Well, you could say that um uh, on Psycho with him, so he, you know, made it there and he was trying on a cowboy hat after he 
you know, after he got after, after he got out of Paris, or exactly. So he comes back home, and yep. then he's on the way, and he's just like, you know, I've never, I've never tried a cowboy hunt before. Yep. And there you go. Yeah, and then th- there we go. Oh my god. Oh my god. And then it's all he, he, you know, he get he gets up the next morning, and he's just like, I'm gonna go to a bird shop and look around in a bird shop. He walks around and looks in that bird shop. He comes out with his two dogs as Tippy Hedren's going yeah. in. Boom. We've all got connected. this. Oh, my God. Hashtag it's all connected. Watch <laughs> Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., guys, um, because nobody else is. Um, Hey-o. Um, well, um, before we go, I've got two more questions for you. Okay. First is, the films we've discussed today, we've talked Suspicion, Notorious, North by Northwest, To Catch a Thief. How do we see those types of films today? Um, like, how does that, how is that groundwork laid at that point? Um, I don't think – I think those films hold up really well. I don't think there's anything really in them that makes them – uh, that dates them too much. Do you think that we see things like within them in our, uh, like of those films in our films today? Um, uh, I mean, you can, <laughs> I mean, you can correlate stuff like national treasure. I mean, it's the <laughs> obvious one with North by Northwest. Yes. Um, you already mentioned oceans 11 for to catch a thief. Um, the older stuff's a little more hard. Um, there's not too many, Nazi spy thrillers anymore? Um, no, but I would go with suspicion. Though there was a period in the '90s where we had a lot of sexy thrillers. Yeah, <laughs> like like thinking your your man or your girl is going to kill you. Oh, I mean, even you could. <coughs> yeah. Um, and Notorious, I think, uh, the closest that I've seen to it in terms of World War Two espionage, steamy is honestly allied from 2015. Yeah, actually, I like allied a lot. Maybe that's why I like it a lot. Yeah. So like there, the trope is still there to this day yeah. and North by Northwest that. is the most obvious because of escapist fair, like extraordinary situations couldn't happen in a million years. Like, I mean, this is a bit of a stretch, but something like end game, you know, is escapist entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it does mean things and it has strong holding on gr- solid ground. But ultimately, it is yeah. about things that don't technically happen in the real world. Um, I don't know. Unless did Josh Brolin get purple recently? Might have. Okay, good. Well, I mean, as long as he doesn't have a glove, I think we'll be fine. <laughs> um, and then this is the last one that has mainly just a tie to Cary Grant. Because we've talked a lot about Hitchcock, too. But Grant, I want to send him off on a good note. Do you think anybody could ever become as popular a star as Cary Grant was back in the day? <laughs> we already mentioned him. I think Tom Cruise. <laughs> um <laughs> I think because if you I mean, in all seriousness, I think Tom Cruise is a quintessential movie star. Yeah, Um, he plays everything. Cary Grant played everything. Tom Cruise can play anything. Right. Um, Whether it's um, I mean, if you want to. The only thing I think Cary Grant never did was horror. So um, arsenic and old lace isn't horror. No, that's like a screwball horror film, I guess. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, because someone who's been sustainable for so long, someone who people who still love to go see their movies and someone who I would say is a movie star, I'd say Tom Cruise um, and who has the accolades. I mean, or you can even say someone like Tom Hanks, you know, cause Tom Hanks is a little more of the everyday man and Tom Cruise is more of the movie star. That's why I would lean to Cruise mm-hmm. because he just like Grant, I think Cruise has this um, unattainability to him. Right. Um, where Grant seems like he's a really nice guy and, um, but there's still that aura about him that he is as, you know, a superstar and he's a movie star. Yeah. So he's on, he's unattainable to the normal person. He, I mean, I forget that he's dead, but he's, I mean, <laughs> he's untouchable, but he's close and he's close to being touchable. Yeah. And you know, that's the thing with, 
Which, by the way, that would be a terrible Brian De Palma film, <laughs> but close to Touchables. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, that's why I think Tom Cruise in that regard. Um, because I'm trying to think of another actor that's been sustainable and makes uh, still makes good movies constantly. And we have to keep in mind that once, even once Tom Cruise goes, like the st- the star system has changed drastically from what it was back then. Yeah. And today, even more so, like it's arguable that IP is the star now and not the person. Yeah, but you know, but you need the person too because you can. I mean, I love Robert Downey Jr. Yes. And Robert Downey Jr. could be one too, where. Um, the only thing that held Robert Downey Jr. back is he went through a tough time in his personal life. Right. Um, where Cruz and Grant kind of worked through it. I mean, totally different. I mean, yeah. Robert Downey Jr. had addiction problems that he's really overcome. Right. But, um, but you know, you need someone who's can play anything and can carry on. And there's really not very many actors like that anymore. I mean, the, the versatility factor is a little out yeah. the door com- in comparison. Cause now we know who we're grabbing for. Yeah. Cause you know, I think Tom Hanks would be more of a Jimmy Stewart type. Um, but yeah, I would yeah, say you so- can go the same darkness as Jimmy. Stewart. Yeah. Too. And I'd, I'd say, so- I, I'd stick by my Tom Cruise analogy because they're both movie stars, both good looking dudes. Yeah. I mean, there you go. Yeah. Well, Ryan, before we go, do you want to plug anything? I think I know what the fuck you're going to plug. Um, you can um, like my podcast on Facebook, realnerdspodcast.com, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> so weird. Um, I'm on Real Nerds Podcast, yeah. Stitcher, iTunes, Internet, yep. Twitter, I'm on, Instagram. I, yeah, and you're, and you're also writing a Family Guy article series. which and uh, I'm still working on my screen fact. I, forget, I keep on meaning to post uh, the cat people, but Corinne's been doing a really great job posting articles, and I try not to steal people's thunders like I did to you one day, and I felt really bad about it. <laughs> um, it's not a, that I'm not stealing your thunder, but I try not to draw attention to more than like a couple articles. N- yeah, no, here's the thing, and I think I told you this, but like you know, th- part of the reason we're doing this right now is because of the Clint Eastwood article series taking forever and it was it became less fun over time because <laughs> Clint Eastwood's hard to talk about without getting a little frustrated right now. Um although they just cast uh that guy from uh Black Klansman and I Tanya in his uh, yeah. movie, which I think he's great casting. Yeah. Um but uh but now the uh but the, by the time I had gotten to that article series and I was publishing on that same day, I was just like, I, I don't care. Like, <laughs> like, I want people to read it, but I'm also just like, look, like I'm I'm almost done with this. I'm just happy that it's up now. <laughs> yeah, it's because you know things like that. I never know what's gonna take off. You know, right now my Revenge of the Nerds post is super popular, and I well, because Revenge of the Nerds, like, but that, see, so something like that, I think is harder to watch than Cary Grant trying to kill his wife in suspicion. Exactly, Revenge of the Nerds is. Much more problematic than suspicious. It's still funny, but it's <laughs> it's got yeah, it's got issues. We, it's not. It's like the movie we need to talk about. Kevin, we need to talk about Revenge. Of the <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this real nerds podcast. It's a picture of Robert Carradine looking suspicious with Tilda Swinton in the background, but from body bags, Robert Carradine. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, well, this has been the Shamley silhouette. Um, if you want more information on the Shamley silhouette, visit realnerdspodcast.com. Look for the articles. They'll be coming out twice a month, as well as the podcast episodes. They'll be coming out twice a month. Um, you can follow me at Real Nerd Zach on Instagram. Um, and uh, on the next episode, we don't know yet because this is the pilot. So we don't know if we're going to be picked up for series. So, like, the set's going to change. Exactly. And, and I'm going to replace, I'm, I'm replace t- uh, Jeffrey Hunter with William Shatner. Nice. And, but we'll keep Leonard Nimoy. 
and um, oh, and also Carl Reiner won't be in it anymore. We're no, going to get Dick Van Dyke, Dick Van Dyke instead. Dyke. Won't be called head of the family anymore. It's not going to be called no. the Shamley silhouette. Um, so yeah, but um, I have a feeling that the next discussion might uh, involve Psycho. Uh, that might also be the third one. I don't know. I'm going to record some of these in advance, guys, so that way I can release them on time and not make false promises. But no promises. I work a day job, just like the gentleman in front of me. Sometimes. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but until next time, um, just please continue to listen. Please continue to subscribe. And uh, with that. Subscribe to Real Learners Podcast. <laughs> subscribe to Real Learners <laughs> Podcast. Um, uh, this has been another uh, entry in the Shamley Silhouette. Thanks, everybody.